everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Physiology Secrets podcast. Nick Jankovsis here, back on another episode with a great guest in Paul McKinnon, aka The Balance Runner. Um, quick little background, if you haven't listened to the previous episode we did with Paul back in episode 69 of the podcast back in April 2019, highly recommend going and listening to that one. Uh, first, a little bit of background, but we've got him back on, absolute gun. Um, it has been way too long since we had him on, so Want to just check in, see how things were going. Uh, first of all, so without any further ado, welcome back to the podcast, mate. Uh, thanks for having me again. Yeah, it has been a little while. I, didn't, I hadn't realised how long it was until you just mentioned it before. That's that's what uh, that's what twelve months of uh, lockdown and COVID and stuff last year I think did to us. But <laughs> it's all right. We've got you back. But something we did want to check in on, um, and we're just speaking off uh, off air before talking about what you have been doing over the last sort of twelve to eighteen months. Do you want to just fill us in on how you've been able to keep up to date with working with athletes? Um, obviously, COVID threw in a bit of a um, bit of a spanner into the works for a lot of us in the industry. But how have you been able to sort of keep in touch with improving athletes' technique, um, working on the running technique side of things, even though you may or may not have been able to be in person with them specifically? Because um, we've definitely seen on your social media, you've been posting a lot about some PBs that you had guys be guys and girls been getting over the last little while. So, what's been going on in that space? Well, I think I was really fortunate probably about 12 months, 12 or 18 months before lockdown um, happened last year that I'd started doing some um, uh, online sessions. So FaceTime, like FaceTime or, you know, Zoom or, you know, equivalent sessions. Uh, it happened just by chance, to be honest. Like it was, uh, there's a guy, I don't know, you've probably heard him like that triathlon, Taron, um, got in contact with me through one of your um, old athletes, Simon Hearn. And and he just said, oh, I'd love to give it a go. And at that point, I was probably a bit reluctant just because of, as you know, the sessions that I do, like are quite um, involved in interaction and, and trying to get a person to understand what's going on. And that one-on-one, so I was kind of a little bit reluctant to try it because I wanted to make sure that the quality was there. But did it, worked really well, um, kind of refined it a bit and got people to send me their, oh, got, you know, got him, got people to send me their videos prior to so I could actually really break it down and have a, um, you know, slow motion understanding of, of what their movements were like. So that in-person portion that is really crucial to me to be able to see the movements became almost um, not required, you know, because I've got their videos, I knew what they were doing, and then I could go and then just do a session like, you know, what we're doing now and actually just talk through the exact same thing as what I do one-on-one and in-person with the knowledge that I've got already before their movement. So if it's not quite clear enough, which is actually getting better and better with the videos now anyway, if it wasn't quite clear enough to see those really small, discrete movements, um, it didn't matter because I'd already seen them. So it's just kind of walking in or running them through a session. So probably 12 months before the lockdown that occurred. So I'd already built up a, a bit of an understanding and awareness of um, that I was doing it. And so when it hit, um, you know, because of the, the 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 races and all that sort of stuff, it stopped. There was a you know a short kind of stop, um, but since then it's just kind of you know continued to kind of grow. So yeah, that that growth and being able to work with people um, both in other states within Australia, but but overseas is yeah kind of kept going. And then from that, it's it's probably understanding that not everyone wants to do one-on-one sessions. You know, people get. Well, not, not, not necessarily reluctant, but maybe self-conscious or this is not how they operate, which is fine. So now it's kind of developing a little bit more of a, um, an online suite of cues that I use um, to allow people to become members and, and kind of run themselves through it. And it just kind of becomes their, their own kind of find your own adventure a little bit, but in the guise of or, or under the structure of how I do the session. So getting get them understanding what their movements are, how to feel them, 
how to feel what they're doing and then they can go through like a suite of cues that they want to kind of work on and I mean that's probably the next development from from what I've done yeah and I think that's really cool in terms of something we've always talked about with um on the podcast but then also with a lot of our clients at, at Mets is is that that time commitment to be able to either come into the lab or come and see you in person normally or even just book in a, a live online session however you want to do it I think where you're heading now in terms of building a library of stuff and providing those resources, pointing people in the right direction, then, I mean, we're all busy for the amateur athletes of us who are, who are working and things like that as well. Makes so much sense to then be able to get that session done basically in their own time. And particularly yeah. if we're then talking internationally as well, I mean, it saves you getting up at 2 a.m., 3 a.m. to do an online session <laughs> yeah, well, with someone I'm... on the other side of the world. But, um, but yeah, I yeah. think that's like in terms of usefulness for athletes, I mean, Definitely, uh, for those listening, if if you're interested, we'll put the uh, the contact details in the in the description of the podcast. Because definitely, I think check it out. It's definitely worth worth looking as, like you said, as a starting point. If you're not someone to want to jump in that one-on-one environment necessarily, maybe having a look at some of these cues might might sort of trigger a few things. And then if you want to go from there, I think I absolutely recommend it. And, and Luke would be the same. And 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 all of us at Mets, we all all benefit from the work, the work that you do. So um, definitely, definitely recommend it. No, thanks. For that. And like, yeah, you're right. The timing becomes a little bit difficult. I'm doing morning sessions with people from the US or, you know, like uh, through the Americas and then afternoon evenings is a little bit more kind of Europe and UK. <laughs> and so it can get a little bit trying with that. But oh, like, like you, and like you really mentioned, it's if you're not someone who likes to do that one-on-one stuff, it just gives another option. And I think that was probably the development for me because I didn't want to, again, didn't necessarily want to do it that way because you could see people clambering and scrambling to do that stuff for financial purposes without kind of a complete or full understanding of it, if they could do it or not. And it was just like, Oh, I'm still offering this and, you know, keep you paying. Whereas um, for me, it's like once there was an understanding when I spoke to Brenton from effortless swimming, like once there was an understanding that he goes, well, there's people that would want to know your information that don't want to do one-on-one and you're not offering, offering that. So you're not actually giving them an opportunity to improve. Um, and, and improve their running or their, their technique. So you're kind of not actually helping them at all. Um, yeah. And once that, that was a little bit more of a, a highlight or that kind of made me go, oh, okay, yeah, you're right. Like it's, I don't want to do it for the right reasons. And that's that's a much better reason, a bit much better understanding for me. So I was like, okay, no, that makes sense. Okay, how do I, then it was like, how do I go about it? What do I do now? So yeah, yeah. that's it. 100%. And I know uh, plenty, we've had Brenton on the podcast as well, previously as well. He's probably due to, due to get back on also, but I know the stuff that's come out of um, his online sort of catalogue of drills and things like that has been really, really useful. So you can only imagine from a running perspective, we're, we're going to get very, very similar. Let's jump into a couple of the, the I guess, the big things. And really the reason we the reason we get you on is to talk through the things happening in the running technique world and, and how we can become faster, um, better runners, reduce the risk of injury and, and the rest that goes with it. First thing I want to tick off, and we, I believe we did cover this back, but a lot has obviously changed in the last sort of two years. What are the biggest errors you're seeing um, in terms of people trying to improve their own running technique, coaches trying to improve their athletes' running technique? Um, you did make a post a little while ago uh, that we were talking about before um, about like midfoot landing and increase your cadence. That'll kind of resolve a bunch of issues probably not the case but what are the big things that you're seeing at the moment that people are probably doing not quite right maybe have good intentions for but how can we maybe look at it in a slightly better way i think like if we go to kind of the the macro side of it it's you know like there's a heap more people running for obvious reasons given that it's like well it's accessible it's you know unfortunately 
um, gyms or studios that, that are closed down it, and the small time frame that people can get out with, with when they are in lockdown, um, running became and has become quite popular, uh, popular, quite a lot more popular. So I think one of the, like the macro levels is that, that everyone's a, an expert on running. Um, you know, everyone thinks that if they've done their, you know, strength and conditioning, their teaching, whatever it is, their, their personal training, it's like it's that it's a simplified movement and that everyone kind of has an understanding of it and can give advice on it. So that's probably like the real high level stuff because you can just see advice getting given, not just about technique, but about programming, about what's required for it, um, which is so far from the truth because no other sport is like it. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's in running. It's like, oh, you know, everyone, everyone's kind of uh, has a, has a, um, an ability to give advice on a technical side of it with the, with the technique. Yeah. Like it, it just goes straight to the common things. And it's almost like everyone is giving the advice about where you should land, um, you know, where, what part of the foot you should be landing on, um, being, you know, forefoot, midfoot, heel. Uh, and it, doesn't work that way like the understanding that, that it is the end of um an extremity it is at the end of the leg um so that first focal point of being the outcome being what they're going to change is like it's probably one of the biggest things about the focal point of change being the outcome rather than what's yeah. actually the the um all the information and all the movements and all the positioning that actually go into that outcome so that's the big one and that's the one that i get or one of the two that you mentioned that I get pretty uh, frustrated with, I think is the best thing because I, I think there's a lot of people who don't have a lot of understanding of what running is and they've just got into it. So they think, oh, okay, well, that's the, you know, that's the bill and or that's the panacea of my problems and I need to actually change that. So yeah, I'll try and do it. And then they get even more injured or, or they're not understanding why it works. So I get really frustrated because um, it's dangerous. And the other thing is, which is even worse, is a lot of those people are probably paying for that information and they're trying it and the information is poor it's wrong really um and the other one that you touched on that is this is a real bugbear is the cadence um is utilized as a as a um as a way to manufacture a change or manipulate movement whereas it's an understanding it's similarly that it's an outcome but i think instead of thinking about like a like a um a landing position or a strike position on the foot being a part of a movement outcome this is a this is a um, what would you call like a information outcome exactly the same as what speed is. So speed is an information outcome of like what what you're doing and how like just how fast you're running. You look down at your watch and go, okay, I'm running this this speed. Yeah. So using cadence to change a movement to improve a movement is like using speed to change a movement or improve a movement. Like that's how ridiculous it is in my head however the number one cue i reckon used by a lot of in particular medical professionals are oh, you know like you've got a, a long overstride you've got a heel strike it's a really low cadence you pick shorten your stride pick your cadence up and it just doesn't work that way they're just doing the same thing just a smaller version of it more times they haven't actually changed what is creating um, the landing pattern the forces um, that are going through the body and yeah, so they're, they're the two ones that I see all the time. Like it's always outcome-based. It's always outcome-focused without understanding what's going into it. And that's where the technical side and the and like the knowledge comes from. Okay, what is happening through that pattern of movement to create A, that landing, B, that cadence output? Now, it could be a really low cadence, but the person could be seven foot tall. 
running perfectly yeah and just doing an easy run and it makes sense so they, yeah they could have like a they have really long legs so they take quite a long stride when they go through longer levers of movement they're running slow so they don't need to apply much force and, and turnover and they're running beautifully but if you just look at the number they could have like a 150s number and go whoa that's a low cadence <laughs> got to pick that up yep. and all of a sudden this seven foot six foot six person has to go oh shit okay well i'm supposed to be hitting a certain number um we won't mention the number yeah, I'm supposed yeah. to do. and then all of a sudden they either have to run faster or take tiny little steps and then they're rushing which then gets into like much more your expertise about why is the heart rate so high like why, why are they working so hard at a slow pace like this doesn't make sense like and then it's okay well no we want you to run slower because your heart rate's going up but then they're trying to hit like a certain number of cadence or they're trying to rush through their numbers and it just doesn't start to work out you're like what's going on or alternatively cadence wise from a poor movement and an overstride and spending a long time on the ground and a big breaking force someone can't run slow or slow enough to match a heart rate that they need to match because they're actually having to work really hard just to feel like they are running yeah because if they go any slower at one point or another both feet will be on the ground and now it's walking they're not running anymore but the reality is they're they are running in a walking mechanic. So for them to feel like they are running, they have to walk really fast. So now they're race walking, but they're cheating because they're getting two feet off the ground. But that effort becomes quite hard for them. Heart rate goes up. So they're never training in their zone. So it has like huge applications into where and how they can train and what they can actually get out of that movement being running. Because if they can't run slow enough, they won't work. And, and this, is, this is where, please pull me up if I get this wrong. You know, if they can't work in that aerobic zone, they're not using oxygen. So they're not getting what they're trying to get as working in that zone. But in the same, same essence is if they can't run fast enough, then they're not going to be able to work in the high end zone either. Yeah. So all of a sudden it, it, it restricts their ability to work in zones that they're supposed to, to get the maximum out of their training. hundred percent. And I think that's a really interesting point because a lot of people talk about, it gets thrown around that, that cliche of, you're not going. You're not going easy enough in your easy run. You're not going hard enough in your hard run. Um, and this can transfer all your, all your sessions, whether you're doing bikes up and swim stuff as well. But particularly running. But it's like, like you said, if there's there could be physiologically nothing wrong with you being able to achieve those low heart rates that we saw and we see in the lab, and we're trying to get you to achieve. It's just your technique or your movement will not allow you to run slow, like effective enough at a slow enough pace to sustain it. Like you said, it becomes that bit of a silly race walk um yeah. and on the, on the same token it's like why well, why can't we get an adaptation at the top end well because i can't push hard enough my body wants to my heart and lungs will go and, and my ability to use oxygen will go with me i just cannot produce the movement required to allow me to go fast enough exactly for long enough because at long that enough, yeah. pace, they might be able to get up to a certain pace but there's no way they'll be able to hold it because the amount of effort required to hold it becomes so far beyond what it should because of breaking, because of ground contact, um, because of the muscles or the, the mechanics that are being used, which is much more like extremities, lower leg muscles, like lower leg um, dominant lever. You know, I'm, I'm having to work really hard to hold this high, higher, somewhat higher pace than what my easy pace is. And now I'm blowing up that way as well. And you're like, well, yeah. now, now it has training um, implications because you just can't move in a manner that's just about increasing or decreasing range of motion because it doesn't work that way it's just about trying to run faster with a 
heavier impact with a heavier ground or a longer ground contact, you go, well, I can't go faster. Yeah. So then the range of ability of what you can run at becomes so small. Your low end's too high and your high end's too low. So you're just working in that band again. You're I'm not getting the most out of my training. Yeah. And, and I but guess it, like, yeah, without, without sort of then, or I guess from that, I, I look at it and go, there then can't be, and this is probably something I observe, and let me know if I'm wrong in terms of the running technique space, but observing from the outside of looking in on that, people who try to provide some insight on it, um, there, there then can't be one technique that is perfect across every single person. There's going to be some variations, isn't there, between every individual is going to have these little subtleties that there might be some general generalised things going to lead to that overall outcome, but we can't, like you said, we can't just say that every, every person, four foot tall to seven foot tall, and with all different proportions of limbs are going to be able to run at a set cadence or a set stride length. Like there has to be so many variations within that, although they might follow similar principles in terms of yeah. where movement's generated from, et cetera, that, out, that outcome, like I said, could be very, very different. So these, these things where it's like, this is a mold of what we're trying to make it run like, isn't necessarily yeah. true. Like there, there isn't one set mold. 100%. Like because there are variabilities to each individual that are training and the variability is often um, you know, anatomical. So those anatomical differences have to correlate into movement differences, into then outcome differences of how long a stride is, how long it takes to get through each stride, um, ground contact time, <laughs> um, cadence, and, and even just something as simple as a cadence. Like you could be running perfectly, with perfect movements coming from really good mechanics and landing in, in, in relation to the body and where you want to, but you're just not fit enough to even have that high cadence. You know, like, oh, full honesty, I'd be at a point at the moment where if, if I was to go out and try and do like a 5K, I wouldn't be able to hold that high because I'm just not fit enough to run at that pace for that long. Yeah. So even then, it's like, well, hang on. Now you need to, you go, okay, well, now you need to build to be able to hold that higher ability for that amount of time so even then it just becomes ridiculous yeah. for me because it's like physical capabilities may may limit what you can get like i'm five five ten and so you'd be in that range of what should be that, that kind of ability to be able to have that turnover but there's no way i mean sorry pardon me like there's no way I'm, I'm fit enough to be able to do that so even then being able to go okay well now there's another part or a component that you have to understand as to where where you can hold and what you can hold for an extended period of time. And then we go back to the anatomical differences of leg length and height. And yeah, like it's terrain. What are you running on? What distance are you running at? So yeah, but as far as a movement, you know, like even just, you know, joint angles of, of glenohumeral joint is going to be different between me, you, Luke, and anyone else listening. So even just angles of arm swing are going to be different how long it takes to go through. Like some people have longer um, limbs. So then, all right, we might take a little bit longer or might have to restrict that movement. But as you said, where the movements are coming from in the majority or the major movements, you know, there's going to be a pattern and, and, a, and an understanding that that's where we want it from and this is how we're going to get it. But then you have to understand the individual of how we're going to kind of comply or get closest to or best fit for that individual. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it, I think in summary of this point, it's like, the, the technique and also just running in general isn't as simple as what we can probably or what gets portrayed sometimes there's so many components that go into it both from the just how fit you are physiologic physiological side of things but then also from the biomechanical movement 
capacity side of things as well, that once you start adding them together to get that end output, it's like, we got so many things to think about, like going, yeah, going and fixing or, or fixing or trying to implement one little change in, in one thing. Yeah. Not only to, is that not going to solve the whole problem, it's potentially going to cause issues across the rest of the issues that we, or, or, or the parts that we already have to try and add together. Particularly um, if it's not from the right start point for that individual, yeah. or, or I think the start point becomes then, I think the other part of, of, of what we're talking about is what, what's, what are the problems that I see with technique advice is that the start point is at the complete wrong and opposite end of where a start point should be for running. You know, it's always at the feet or it's, you know, legs and feet. That's the start point because we just think, oh, we run with our, run with our feet, run with it, which is, is where the um, propulsion force is provided. But that doesn't mean you start there. Like that, it's like, that is the outcome and, and, and the output of, of everything that's happening as a pattern of movement. It's a full body pattern of movement. And so if we're looking at the extremities and the, and the last part to look at the last part to change, then yeah, we're looking at the wrong end. So then, and as you know, like I start completely the opposite end, it's the top end. Um, because what should be most still should almost be, or should be in my opinion, and, and that's probably like why this, this is the method that I use is whatever should be most still in any movement, whether it's a repetitive movement like running or golf or, you know, a deadlift, whatever should be most still should be the first thing that should be changed yep. to be applied, to be allowed to be still and in the right position. Then we can actually work off from what is most still to create the pattern and the synchronization and you know the, the sequencing to create the pattern of movement that we're trying to do. So, you know, deadlift, if you don't, if you have your feet pointed in or you know too wide or for that person's hip angle and joint, it doesn't matter how strong you are, how good you are, like you say, well, hang on, my start point. Yeah. It's stuffed. It's completely screwed. And everyone, as as you know, like everyone's gonna have slightly different length, they've got different ranges of motion or you know, like a squat, the different ranges of motion through ankles. So, you know, how are we going to kind of move like that or what are we going to do there? What angles is it for that individual? So everyone's going to have slightly different. Now, the, pat the pattern or the, the method that you use is going to have a sequencing or go, but it's going to be different for each individual. The same with running. So what is most still? Yeah, it should be chest, torso. What position is it? All right, so now we can work off that. Yep. We can feed off that. We can create a pattern. We can create sequencing. So... Yeah, I think that's probably tied into the first question about what I see is most, um, what I see is being wrong, or what I see is kind of like those most frustrating for me is that it's always focused at the wrong end. Yeah. Like the feet are literally the conduit between the body and the ground to create force, to create you know flight and float. It's it's the in between piece, and yet we're we're worrying about tires on a car rather than the frame of the engine. Hundred percent, hundred percent, and and it's probably something that we can we can talk on on the back of that, uh, which sort of lead I, I guess leads us nicely into is another little post that you put up that was it was a bit of a laugh. I believe it's you snowboarding a pair of budgie smugglers. I think was the <laughs> actual post that you, you put up on there. So you might want to explain that one later. But in terms of um, thing, things that get thrown around like engaging glutes and activation and and. Well, I know we've touched on it before and um, when we've spoken previously and we've talked about it a lot in, in our own conversations around um, your point on movement, changing movement, not just trying to get stronger because it, it's not yeah. 
the, the issue. Do you want to just touch on a little bit around um, if we, when we're looking at running technique and we've just gone through some of those common areas in terms of that output and ultimately we're sort of looking at the same thing from a, if you're just trying to get stronger, like that's just the end result. But if you've got, if you've got a crap deadlift, like we we're talking about before, it's like, well, you can be as strong as you like, but it's, it's not going to necessarily do anything for you. Unlocking yeah. that better movement is going to see you actually dramatically improve. Do you want to just talk a little bit about that, I guess, activation, trying to get particular muscles to work and why that's a bit of really a little bit of BS and, yeah. We've got to focus a bit more on just the movement pattern. Yeah, I think I, I get myself in trouble if you like every now and again because like often word are probably quite like not always wrong or a little bit. I just think people know what I'm what I'm meaning is that and strength and conditioning has a huge and very important part in performance um, rehabilitation injury prevention. So sometimes I'm being criticised of. Oh, well, you don't think it's important. No, no, no. Like, and yeah, sorry. Like, maybe I've, I've, I've worded that wrong. So, hugely important. However, it's used as the panacea and the, and the huge difference in why people aren't getting, that's uh, why people are getting injured in a running sense. It's like, oh, okay, you know, you got weak glutes. Um, you keep getting injured. Uh, you, you know, hip strength and your glutes are weak. So do these, do these clamps, do these, um, you know, sidewalks or open closes and, you know, do a lot of hip strengthening stuff and, and, and you'll be okay. I have so many athletes turning up and telling me that their, their medical practitioner is telling them, oh, no, you just got to do these glute exercises because you, you've got lazy glutes. And the glute, lazy glutes is the, uh, the my <laughs> I fucking hate that term. Because so for triathletes, they could spend four hours on a bike and they're using their glutes the whole time. They're not fucking weak. Yep. They're as strong as anyone you get. If you can walk up steps, you've got strong enough glutes. The thing about glute function and glute use for running is that if they don't go through a movement that utilizes that muscle, and in this case, the glute, then they will not be used. So they could have the strongest glutes ever, but if they're not going through a range of motion, then they're not being used. And then it's easy for uh, a practitioner to go, oh, okay, well, they're weak. They're not weak. They're not used. It'd be like me having a massive gun, like huge biceps, but then holding it straight all the time. You know, I can never see it, but never actually getting into a flex position. It's like it's there, but I'm never going through a range of motion to show that it is there or to use it in a functional sense. So if we go into running, if I never have an extension movement, if I don't have a pendulum swing going into an extension movement, and that's not just in the back end, it's not like the the, the real, the um, contracted part of the glute, it's actually a range of motion. And that can start from a flex state, which with running, once you land, if you're in a flex state, so if your knees are forward and you are actually swinging backwards with the femur then you'll be using them but if your range of motion is really really short and really small then you're never going through a range of motion that utilizes that glute now on top of that if your spine is in a position or if you hold your body in such where you're actually pushing the hips forward which is why i hate to lead with your hips and run your hips forward because if you push your hips forward you're actually closing down the length of the glute and closing down the space and decreasing the angle for them to be able to work. So even positionally, some people shut them off immediately when they start running. So the, the whole idea, the whole idea about this um, 
uh, strengthen your glutes and you'll be able to run better is is crazy because a lot of the times the patterning and the sequencing of, of most running um, athletes a lot of running athletes i see is lower leg dominant so the upper leg doesn't swing very much or if it does it's secondary so then they're using calf and hamstring to create their force they're not using an upper leg drop they're not using the glute so it's not anything to do with strength it's actually the patterning and the sequencing of the movement that's limiting the ability to use it um i had a guy um, online yesterday who was like, sort of second session and, and he does um triathlon coaching as well and he's um been into many physios because he keeps getting one like his left side left foot particularly lower leg gets injured all the time and you didn't he had no idea why and he was told strengthen your glutes oh look you've got a hip drop so they had a look at his running and i was like oh you've got this really big hip drop and i was really strengthening that left left leg left um, left side left glute and what, what was happening is that like his movement was actually more of a, like his whole left shoulder and his, his um, uh, rib cage sort of drove through down and up. And that was his kind of counter movement, which created then a pattern of movement of hip dropping. So it wasn't a strength that was stopping him from holding stable hips. So it was his pattern of movement was creating this movement. Two sessions, it's gone. So he had nothing to do with, a strength or lack thereof. It was a, a pattern of movement or a sequence of movement that was actually creating that hip movement. And often hip hip instability is actually caused from your pattern of movement. It has nothing to do with strength. So you can actually create, as we just spoken about before, create stillness through torso, through spine, therefore hips. All of a sudden it's still. Once it's still, it can be stable. And then it's determined by strength. So if you stable and you set it up and you go through a range of motion, then you fatigue quickly. Well, you probably got to get stronger, don't you? Yeah. But it's not the strength that's going to create the stability. As soon as there's movement, it can't be stable. So it doesn't yeah. matter how strong you are. You're just trying to hold as much as possible while you're going through that range of motion. Yeah. Um, the second part to your question being, why did I put the photo up of the, because <laughs> <laughs> it just stood out, obviously. Yeah. Um, make fun of myself but also to highlight to get people to look you know the glutes side of it you know the ass side of it it's like oh what's he talking about and then going into something a little bit more important so it's probably a little bit more of a fuck that's funny oh, oh yeah it's actually a serious side to it <laughs> it's, it's actually it's actually a post worth worth reading other than just watching him snowboard down a mountain uh <laughs> pantsless but no i think that's a really yeah. important point you, you you make there in terms of that movement and like i mean i felt it in in our sessions that we've done previously where it's like like you said it might only take one or two sessions it might take 10 minutes it might take five minutes but it's like it's however quickly that person then clicks into that movement like i, I can attest firsthand it's like it's it's just this weird feeling of just like like you, it's almost hard to describe how freeing it is when you then click into it and it's like there, there's no possible way in five minutes or two sessions that i could do anything to get stronger like I don't necessarily have to be, I don't have to be stronger. It's like, I can actually just make use of what I've got, which then ultimately is like, if, if I'm looking at it from, from my perspective, it's like how many people go out and just go, all right, I'm just going to calf raise the living daylights out of, out of my calves to just get strong calves. That'll stop me from getting a calf injury. It's like, well, maybe if you just run a bit better in the first place and we weren't loading everything in an awkward pattern because you're not freeing yourself up at the hip enough and that's then causing a compensation somewhere else. And that now we've got calves that are under the pump. It's like, well, 
you don't necessarily have to go and do your three hours of car phrases during the week. You might want to exactly. still do it because we, as we said, it's like, it's not neglecting any of that stuff, so to speak, but it's like, do we need to go and like, it's not necessarily solving the problem either. It's like, we do what we need to, to, to supplement our training. But if we can create movements that are not going to put us in a position to become injured, that will once we do lift that strength side of things, we're not just then compromising it further. And that's, that's the way I, I look at it in terms of if you just have, if you have bad movement, you get stronger and stronger and stronger. It's, it's only going to yeah. make it worse. Exactly. So, and, and the big thing I'd try and when I go and speak to um, uh, like clinics or practices about, okay, if there is an area that is getting stressed from a repetitive movement. So, and again, I'm talking running but it, it's the same in others. And that area of stress shouldn't be stressed as much as it is. Then what is that person doing to create that stress in that area? Like what is the movement they're continually and repeatedly making to create it? And if it's a, a calf and you think, oh yeah, but you, you, you stress the calves. But if you do it well, it's actually more of a stretch shortened cycle of like a, an elastic recoil response. And that's why the Achilles is so um, so thick because it's supposed to be that, that recoil. Now, if you start to you know, stab into the ground and break with a shortened muscle and then you are lower leg dominant and you actually create a pull mechanic to create force, then you are no longer using that calf in a manner that it was designed for in that movement. So you go, why am I overusing it? What's the movement you're creating to do it? Or if the back is always tight, you know, if the groins are copying something that they shouldn't be, unless you're kind of multi-directional sport, you, you know, okay, what movement are you doing? What rotation are you putting? What are you actually um, applying over and over again to create that stress? Rather than, as you said, like, I'll make it stronger because it's obviously, it, it's, it's too weak. You know, it is too weak for that movement you're making. So maybe start to think about it in two-prong. Yes, strengthen it because it's obviously damaged and you want it to recover. But then what are you doing to create that stress in the first place? Like in a simplified engineering thought process, if there is a bridge and there is a portion or part of that bridge that, that is breaking or is under stress, they don't just replace that part with a stronger piece and then brush their hands clean and say, we've done it. It's like, well, yeah, we, we replace it with a stronger piece, but we understand that why is there a stress point? What is it about this mechanic, this structure that's creating stress there ah look this is what happened okay now we need to change that and put it so it's like it's two-sided and it's just like engineering 101 we don't think about it in, in running in particular and we do as well as what we could do in in all movement sense it's like okay if it's a repeat stress movement which if you're thinking about sport everything's repeat stress even if it's hockey with drag kicking baseball throwing Tennis, repeated movement. Like it's all repeated movement. It just doesn't happen to be um, an open pattern of movement like a running or a swimming or cycling. What is that person doing over and over and over again to put stress in that point? Is that right and they're just weak enough? No. Oh, hang on. And so kind of looking at it a little bit more critically. So that's probably, yeah, that was the reason for that. Yeah. In a post. And I think it's it's spot on. I think that's, it's one of those things and, and probably leads us into the last big thing we talk about um, in this episode anyway, but that, that movement piece, I, I think probably more so from a, a technique side of things, a lot of amateur runners would sort of look at it and go, yeah, I probably could do a few things to, to run a bit better, but this travels right through to 
the professionals as well. And that's probably where it's even more pronounced. And I guess we, we were talking before a little bit about um, Lionel Sanders as an example versus Frodeno and the, the tri battle recently. It's like you, you've got one guy who, um, and I don't know what your thoughts on Frodeno's running technique are. Like he looks pretty good, reasonably good to me. But in comparison, Sanders is just like, I know he's fatiguing a bit towards the end, but even from the start of the run, he's just waddling along. It doesn't, it just doesn't look like he's a good runner. Like anyone could watch that and go, it's one of those intuitive things. Like you look at someone and you're like, oh yeah, they can run. You look at him yeah. and you're like, gee, he's struggling, but he's still able yeah. to put out a 249 marathon at the end of his end of his full Ironman. But ultimately he gives up what 15 minutes in terms of total time across the event. Five of those minutes being in, in the run. So do you want to just talk a little bit on, I guess, maybe that elite end of the spectrum in terms of how beneficial could it be to some of those guys in terms like we're looking at Olympics coming up, the marathons coming up, you'll see a whole bunch of different techniques. Those guys ultimately are the fittest and the best in the world, but there yeah. has to be a distinguishing factor. Do you want to touch on maybe some of those, like some of those elite marathon runs, probably a good example, like these guys who have insanely good engines, but probably won't win gold at the Tokyo Olympics because well, the guy's got the better well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's start with your, your Fredino um, Sanders example. Is that firstly, Fredino's had technique advice. You know, like he's actually gone and seen someone over an extended period of time, it was probably about two or three years ago, to get some improvement in, in his movement. So there's a, there's a good start right there. Um, and, and look, he runs you know, quite well. And the, the, the smoothness of movement is, is probably twofold. One, that he moves quite well. Eh? Two, that he's quite long levered, he's a little bit taller. So it takes time to get through each movement, which means that his cadence isn't as high. So it's not a rushing mechanic and movement. And, and when we are running and when we're distance running, at no point are we running flat out. So everything is, you know, within capacity. And, and for that, it would be like, you know, 70, 80% of, of, of flat out. They're super fit, so they can hold it for an extended period of time. So even then, nothing should look like like you're thrashing about like that, that it's an effort because it is so submaximal for an extended period of time. So there's there's probably three things to think about for, for him in particular. And then obviously his fit. So you can't ever take away from you know, the conditioning this side to it. Um, Sanders, yeah, he's low, he's flat, he's shuffling, he has no real um, flight from extension, from power, and bounding off the ground. Like we want to actually spend as much time off the ground as possible, which also adds to that uh, look or aesthetic of, of that effortless kind of movement or that freeing of movement. But also as an individual doing it, there's a freeing of movement as well. Yeah. It's like, I mean, yeah, this is bloody great. Yeah. Rather than just grinding through over and over and over. And I think the big thing about him is that he may well be fitter than, than Fredino. So Sanders might actually have a, a bigger capacity, a bigger engine, a bigger VO2. Like, I don't know. I, and until you get him tested or if you know those numbers, you don't know. Mm. But he, he may be superior in all those levels and yet he needs to be to be competitive because his movement is actually restricting him or holding him back or he needs that to be able to hold a higher pace. So this is when you can be super, super duper fit move poorly and get a good time. Well, what if you moved well? What if you moved in a manner that was actually beneficial and, and powerful and, and freeing and, and going through a range of motion? Like that's where I see the, the benefit and using those two 
two examples. But then if we go into then the, the marathon example that you're talking about, I think that's where the varying degrees almost become bigger because it's just one sport. And then some of those athletes move quite poorly but are so supremely fit is that they can actually still be successful. So then the argument becomes, okay, we well, don't need to move in a certain way or, you know, like that works for them. So, yeah, it does. But it, just because they're successful doesn't mean, or just because they're fast and competitive doesn't mean that they might be doing something wrong yeah. or they might be limiting or restricting themselves. They could and, actually and the be a lot faster. Yeah. Could be actually a lot faster. And that's the thing for me that like, is it so mind boggling is that, because they're competitive, it means that, it, that the movement's not important. It's like that is the antithesis of what you should be thinking as an elite athlete. It's like, what can I do to become better? And biomechanically, we know what comes from poor movement. But then it's like, oh, no, but they're still moving fast, so don't change it. But, but they're moving in a manner that is breaking, that is longer ground contact, that is actually um, holding point of or center of mass behind where you'd want to and no no but they're still fast so don't change it and you just think I, I, that, that doesn't make sense to me so in that running capacity and then using that example that i spoke to you about the um breaking two so doing that first breaking two where they tried to break two hours for the marathon they had five or six athletes lined up um to do breaking two or that they wanted to use for breaking two and kipchoge wasn't one of them the five or six that were lined up, two, two being um, two of the ones that, that they included in, in the end, like they say, um, the queue. Yeah. Anyway, um, all five or six of them had bigger test results, lab results, than Kipchoge. So, you know, their two was higher, their lactate capacity was higher. All that stuff that you guys do was higher than what Kipchoge's was. So, it's like, oh, we won't use Kipchoge. And one of the guys goes, well, why not use Kachogi? He's the fastest marathon runner at the moment. Yeah, but he doesn't have a higher capacity. Well, now we start to understand how he is so good. His engine and his mental capacity, which is another thing again, his engine isn't as big as the other guys, but his movement is so pure, so pure that he's actually make maximizing, and they make comment of that in, in the documentary. He's maximizing what he has got. The others need the high, the high um, numbers, the big tanks, because they move inefficiently. You know, they're, they're wasting energy. They're leaking, probably the best way, they're leaking energy as they run. So that's where a movement becomes so important. And, and you'll see, as you said, in that, in that marathon, um, in a couple of weeks' time, you'll see a heap of guys and girls that move poorly. <laughs> we'll go with like, or, you know, could have improvements. Yeah. Um, but they're still fast. And and then it's, again, we go back to that, that continuous carousel of, oh, well, they don't need it. But they could be so much faster. Yep. And the, the big thing I see with them is that their injury profile is quite up and down. So the ones that move really, really well and are coached well, so there's the other pillar of, um, of, of, um, of loading, they move well, which is one part of loading and running. And then if they're coached well, which is the other pillar of loading, then they can have a really consistent injury profile where they kind of can do their periodization. They can peak and trough based off what, how they're going. Whereas poor movers that load in a manner that's, you know, lower leg dominant or, you know, placing pressure on places that cop it. 
then all of a sudden their injury profile is like, okay, yeah, but they can go really fast because they're sprint athletes, they'll hold for a little bit, they might do, and they go, oh, shit, injured. Then they have this injury profile, this up and down, or a little bit more inconsistent. So that's where I see the huge change. And then consistency of training can create um, those performances. So, yeah, so in that, in that regard, it's a little bit too prone. Yeah, and I think that's, that's where I like using in that discussion there i really like using that elite example because it's a really obvious one to say it's like let's take the fittest people on the planet basically and let's take a person who's got really good movement and someone who's got really poor movement and then see what the outcome is well ultimately majority of the time the person with the really good movement is probably going to come out on top as long as they like as long as that fitness gap isn't so dramatic that it starts to go the other way keeping that in mind but if then we transition that i guess that thought process back to the amateur level it's like like the number of times I've heard um, clients come in, they're, they're like, oh, well, I just need to get fit up because I want to try and get on a podium at a, uh, at a marathon or a half marathon, things like that. It's like, well, yeah. you're already pretty fit. Like the person who's way ahead of you, yeah, sure, they might also be really fit as well or they may, may not actually be that fit. Half the time yeah. I haven't seen them, seen them move, so I, I don't know who they're talking about. But it's like, yes, getting fit is one thing, but majority of the time when we get them in the lab it's like you're already running like you're already running pretty quick like your vo2 is really good like and that's where it gets i guess hard from our and it's like it's only one piece of the puzzle we then take that and go all right from a movement perspective like what can we unlock there that's all right that's our that's our limiting factor it's just understanding what your limiter is the guys who move really great well sure we can we can do everything we like from a physiology perspective to try and get you fitter because then well that's your limiting factor rather than the movement side of things but I, I think that's like if you can see it at the elite level and like i recommend everyone who's going to go and watch the marathon and potentially the triathlon and and all the endurance endurance based running events really is the obvious ones to see it in the in the olympics coming up it's like have a look at that that differential at the top end that can apply back to the amateur level obviously there's a bit bit more broader spectrum but when we're looking at like yeah not, not at the moment when we don't have world, world champs and stuff going on, but when we talk about people want to qualify for Kona in the age groups or, or go to New York marathons and qualify and things like that, it's like this stuff is so applicable there to be able to gain well, that five or 10 or 15 minutes you need to get under the time. It should almost be seen as more, even more, you know, more applicable. It should be like as an individual who is not at the elite level or go – this is bloody great. I'm not a good mover. Like I'm, 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 I'm a poor mover, and yet I'm, yeah, I'm still doing okay. Like they should, you should almost be seen as like, hey, this is low hanging fruit. Yeah, this is low hanging fruit that's actually going to make me better and a, and a lot easier, and maybe even less time consuming than what you know consistency of training is required and the effort put into it. Like it's it's a technique, it's a movement change. As you said, like it's a piece to the puzzle, but it's like, hang on, I've, I've got other avenues for improvement other than, you know, sleeping and nutrition and, and just training harder or, or becoming fitter. It's like, this is, this is a real change that can be done. And, and you find the person who, who does it really well, get the change. You go, holy shit, now I can, now I can actually train more or I can run faster or, or um, swim faster or whatever it may be in the technical part of it. Um, You'd almost be more upset, you know, like, oh, geez, I'm a perfect mover. You know, like, I actually move yeah. really well. I'm like, shit, okay, well, that's that piece of the puzzle that maybe I don't need to work on. And there's not many people like that. But as yeah. you said, like, there's varying degrees of that area. Um, there's some that move quite well already. Then you go, well, sorry, you know, I can help you out in, in a few bits and pieces and, and kind of refine. But there's many, many, many more people that are at the other end of that scale where it's like yeah. you could actually get a 
huge amount of improvement in a short space of time from actually just being better at what you're trying to do in a movement or a positional capacity. Yeah. Um, the other thing when you're talking about like watching the, the elites, I think the really hard thing, well, hard thing, particularly in triathlon, which is like a lot, a lot of the people that, that, that you work with or, or rugby proportion is you look at so like a, a line of sand and they go, oh, okay, well, so he's an elite, very, very fast. So, you know, like oh, I'll run like that person mm. or swim like that person. Or you know, no. No, 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 no. Just because they're a leader, particularly at triathlon, like there's three different sports. It's really hard to do three different sports and do them exceptionally well. And I get that. But you go, okay, who is the best mover? And it might be a triathlete, like it might be a dinner, but I can see now there's better runners that move better. Yep. It's like, okay, well, if, I, if I want to look at what a good swimmer looks like, I will look at the best technical swimmer known, known to the sport. I'll look at the best technical cyclist. Like, what do they look like? How do they? What are they? You know, what what are their proportions? What does it look like? Or, or even going, okay, what what do they look like compared to me? Yeah. And running in particular, it's like don't look at a fast person. Look at a technically supreme person. What what are the best people to look at? So I think that sometimes gets caught as like particularly triathlon during the early two thousand or two thousand. It's like oh, there's a really good triathlete, like a super fast it's a world champion. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Doesn't mean they do it well. Mm. They run, they swim, they cycle super quick and quicker than anyone else. Doesn't mean that they do the, the movement well and that they could be doing it better. It's like, no, but I'll need them because they're the champion. Yeah. You know, like that. That's a real, because it is a sport where you have to do three. And yeah. I think the, the big example that comes to mind there is the, is the Michael Phelps example. I think like he's, he was an absolute gun in the pool and like arguably going to be one of the greatest of all time in terms of swimming but not everyone can swim with an asymmetrical stroke. Like he, he swam with a no. lopsided stroke. Um, but it's like, do we necessarily want to be going and copying that? Well, for some for some people it might work, but it's probably that very select group that it's like from a pool sense yes. that, that works there. But you look at 90% of other swimmers, like how, how many others in those Olympics who were half a second behind him um, were, were swimming with this asymmetrical lopsided stroke? Like none of them were. You've got one. No. So he like... That's, that's where I guess our, I guess the point here we're probably both trying to make is like you don't necessarily have to look at the fastest one or like we're not looking at potentially the outlier as well in terms of, all right, well, they do something that's not quite, it, like it just doesn't quite look right and all that, but they're still fast enough, so we'll copy that. Doesn't mean yeah. it's, like you said, it doesn't mean it's good just because it's quick doesn't mean it's good. Could be yeah, a hell- best practice for, the, for you as an individual, yeah. Yeah, could be yeah. a hell of a lot better. Um, anything else you want, to, you want to add on and talk about? I know we've covered quite a lot so far is there anything else bugging you at the moment Dude, what, do you, what do you want to see you, what are you excited for yeah, you've pretty much just pulled out the stuff that annoy me like you, you just you've pretty much just gone all right what's the stuff that you get most frustrated about what do you get yeah that's uh that's surprising right. how calm you um, kept yourself out of that <laughs> yeah no <laughs> you know i gotta learn how to you know keep bits and pieces in and, and try not to blow my handle um what am i looking forward to so with the olympics coming up um look i don't know a lot about the athletes in the triathlon so i, I couldn't i couldn't say too much other than um one of the one of the balance runner athletes jonathan gorlach he'll be uh racing in the um in the paralympics in the, in the oh, triathlon yeah. so Get on good luck to him yeah. um the running the i'm just excited with more with the australian 
um, runners and, and the racing that's going to be happening within that. So people like um, Katrina Bissett, Jessica Hull, um, and the the marathon with with Sinead and um, Ellie, like amazing like races to look forward to in, in, the, in the female side. Uh, um, obviously, Stewie, interesting to see how he goes against uh, that world when they're all together. So he's done really well recently in the in the um, the Diamond League stuff. But having like Inga Britson, oh, I'm looking actually forward to seeing if Inga Britson can win the 1500. I really want to see. See how he goes. Um, obviously, when you see the, the men's marathon with uh, with the Aussie guys going there and Kipchoge running. What else? Would I... Well, the five and ten. I always love watching the five and ten, but that's just more about just watching the race. So I think that's probably yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm actually yeah. They're probably the the highlights for me, and, and probably the ones that I've circled to make sure that I, that I watch. Yeah. Last question. Do you see any world records being broken this Olympics? I do. So, and, and I actually think there'll be a lot more world records broken than what people realise, just because I don't think I don't think there's an understanding of how much competition takes away from your ability to have that consistent and sustained training. So with that lockdown that we've just had, we've had 18 months of um athletes having consistent periods of training and not competing. And, and whilst we train so that we can compete or test it and try and do really well, I think the amount of competing that, it, that, that is required kind of limits that consistent growth. And now I've had like 18 months of people training and not having that real damaging, you know, say marathon effort or, or, or um, consistent race season that can be, you know, like it pulls you back before you have to kind of train again. It's like, okay, well, we'll just keep training, keep pushing, keep pushing. And particularly with the Australian, a lot of the Australian athletes haven't been able to travel much. They haven't had that ability to go over and compete. So they're not sure where they stand, which is probably daunting in some respects, but it's also like, I'm not sure how high they could go as well. Yeah. And I think a lot of the athletes are pretty similar. Um, so they haven't had that real, you know, two or three marathons a year over the last 18 months and like then one maybe when they got to sneak out and do the London or got to sneak out, you know, mm. so they've had huge preparation periods. So I actually think there'll be a fair few more than what people realize for that reason. Yeah. It's definitely an interesting point. I think that the, the whole, yeah, just having a greater consistency. I think that's one thing that as amateur athletes, you, you look at it and go, you're probably racing here a handful of times a year at best. And you've got all that, you've got six month preparations or eight month preparations to lead up to one event. It's like we have to remember it's like yes this in the olympics it's like all right they, they talk about the cliche of four years or and now ultimately five years building to one event well it's like no they're, they're racing so many times per year through qualifiers and then just like for a lot of them it's just the prize money and the sponsorship so it's like yeah now that we've got a period that that they've got that consistency to just go and train for six seven eight months um be really interesting to see sort of how Everything stacks which up. Which has been like, which I can completely understand, which is why it's been really hard for them. They're like really been shit in a lot of ways because they've been yeah. able to travel and, and, and train and, and compete, which is what you want to do and compete in on that level. But it does have, I think, outside benefits. And I think then, which could probably then lead into or probably is more the skeptical mindset is like, you know, how many have been tested over long periods of time and, you know, what is the capacity and what's, and, and which is, I think, is real as well. Like, I think it's actually a, a valid point. Um, yeah. 
we like to think sports clean, but you never know. <laughs> you never know. Well, yeah. I don't think so, is it? You know, yeah. I, I think the longer that the person is understood to be clean and, and post, I think that's why careers almost get need to be followed post retirement as well because of, you know, like the, um, you know, the, the, blood banks and the, you know the ability to retest 10 years down the track and yeah. to be able to do that so um and it doesn't help those people who come second third and fourth at the time but it's still i think the more that gets done the more pressure i think gets put on again well i could still be found out and and like sanctions coming down on them at that point 10 years down the track that kind of dissuade them from doing it now yeah i think that's starting to happen a lot more as well so yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Like it's, yeah, because because you could. Yeah, there's just so much to it, isn't it? Because you could yeah. come on to the onto the frame and be really good at one level and go, okay, what happened for the six months, the six years beforehand? It just kind of popped up in and over. Yeah, but that's me normally. So I don't know if that's normal or if it's come from a long way behind. But yeah, I don't know, you kind of sit and hope and you watch it, and maybe that's just a part of what sport is as well. That that becomes part of the questioning and the debate and the conversation. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll hope for we'll hope for some uh, some good racing. Hopefully, it's all. All clean in the meantime, it is those athletes going out and doing those those longer preps. But um, appreciate you coming back on the on the podcast, mate. Where, no worries, where, that was good fun. Where, I'll leave all the notes down 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 in the description anyway. But just a little quick shout out for your your socials and that. Where can everyone find you again for those who who don't know? Well, at thebalanceround.com, you just see that photo of me and Buggy smuggled at the top. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's probably where you see most, most information that I put out. Um, or thebalanceround.com.au. Um, probably the two main thing, two main places to find me. Perfect. Like like I said at the beginning, definitely recommend to anyone listening to to go check check your stuff out. It's it's unreal what what you do. Uh, we definitely appreciate you you being a part of our little community as well, helping us out, and uh, hopefully we can do the same. So appreciate you coming on. Hey podcast, Nick from Mets here. Hopefully you enjoyed another great episode of the Physiology Secrets podcast. If you want to keep up to date with any future episodes we produce, other content we create here, or just anything that's happening in the lab here in general, be sure to click the link below. Sign up to our weekly updates. We're going to receive some absolute gold in terms of what's happening in the lab, what are we seeing and observing, and also some of our old content as well that you might have missed to further understand the science behind endurance performance. So if you are interested, make sure you do click the link below, sign up for those weekly updates, and head over to our social media as well. Follow us along at Instagram at Mets Performance. Head over to Facebook. We have a great YouTube channel as well. Be sure to check out all of our great content that is already up there, but also some of the great stuff that is coming soon. Thanks again. Be sure to share the podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed another episode and we'll see you in the next one.